welcome to this week's episode of the Hammer Time Podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Hammerman. We are on Playmaker Mentality. We are on iTunes, talking about sports, society, and all other types of stuff. Last week, I tried an experiment. I did a live video webcast and tried to record it as a podcast with some of my friends from college who also happened to run a great charity, CC Champions, which teams up athletes with kids with cancer. Unfortunately, the audio was really, really bad. So, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. There was no podcast last week, but we did end up raising $23,000 for charity, which is a new record for them, so I'm really happy. That sponsors about 50 kids and their relationships with athletes. So, thank you, everyone who contributed to that. That was really great. This week, I got a young gun on the show, someone who I go pretty far back with, and I'm actually going to start off by naming one site that we wrote for together a while ago, and June Lee of Over the Monster, the Washington Post, and host of the Doing It For Bartolo podcast knows exactly what I'm talking about. So June, first of all, uh, it's good to see that you are doing okay, but I wanted to talk about the first time that I think we ever interacted, and it was when we were writing for a certain website called SportsRealBoston.com. Yeah, the good old days. The good old days run by former broadcaster and now celebrity chef Jen Royal, who I have nothing but love for. Jen is the best. She was fun to work for, I thought, overall. Uh, Yeah. It was a fun fun project. I had a good time doing that. It was a good time. It was a good time. It was a... I'm really happy that all those archives are deleted, and the <laughs> website, there's not really any any remnants of it, because I really don't want to go back and read the writing that I had back then. I think I was a, I think that I was a senior in high school going into, you know, halfway through my freshman year of college, and I just don't want, I don't want to go back and read those, those, the, the things that I was writing back then. Those are clips. Those are clips, you know, you gotta take the good with the bad, and it shows the overall improvement process of your work so i had a good time doing patriots of over there although at that point i think i was only doing like a top 10 list of the same exact pros and cons every single week and it got a little bit repetitive toward the end but i got some good feedback from it and jen was always really upbeat and energetic and i guess she just decided to pursue other passions and go on the taste and i will say it was a lot of fun watching the taste when jen was on it she was a contestant on Team Ludo, and she did a Jen, really good job. Yeah, I mean, Jen is, Jen, I've, like, had some of the things that Jen has made, and she's, like, a great chef, and she's certainly a personality, uh, and she's she was a perfect fit for, for that show, really. You know, Jen, if you ever want to come to New York, I can set you up. I would, I would love to have you cook for me, because your food does look amazing, and, and now June is saying good things about it, so I gotta get it as well, but anyway, some nice reminiscences we're going to oh go to sports God, and Boston. it's been a while. Oh, sports real Boston. Those were, those were when the internet was still the wild west and anything could happen. I remember fun, fun times on that site. I think they actually broke a couple of baseball stories too, because Jen had those sources with Napoli and whatnot. Yeah, there was a, there was a couple of stories with Napoli and Jared Carabas, who writes for Barstool now. Um, he had a one season interlude over at sports real. Um, and that was before he went over to Barstool. I think that was like two years before then. So like those, um, 
there's some pretty notable I mean, Red Sox coverage and just baseball coverage on there. And uh, there was Alex Cora wrote a couple things, and Frank Cavalinata wrote a couple things. Uh, I think Jim Duquette wrote a couple things. There was some there was some pretty good baseball content on there for a website that's non-existent now. And meanwhile, I was the football writer. I think there was me. It was a uh, Steve Ballesteri who hosts the Patriots podcast. Zach Thompson, who I think might actually be writing for a fantasy site now. And there was one other person. Fan-sided fantasy. Yeah, cool. And there was one other person. I do not remember who it was. I'll look them up after this podcast and remember. But anyway, as you said, you are a baseball guy. I remember that even you are, are getting your hands dirty. You know, you got your sources that you talk to on a regular basis, especially toward the Red Sox. So as a fan, it has not been a very positive preseason sort of capped off by Carson Smith getting injured. How yeah. sca- How bad is it going to get this year? Is it going to be really bad, do you think? I don't think it's going to be that bad. Uh, I mean, I, I generally consider myself a relative optimist uh, when it comes to just life in general. And I, I see the Sox definitely being uh, a big contender in the division this year, um, especially with the addition of, of Price, uh, David Price, who I absolutely adore. Um, but I, this bullpen... I mean, Carson Smith, I think, is only going to be out max two months, hopefully. Uh, Andrew Miller had a similar injury last year. He was only out a month. Homer Bailey was out for two months, I think, with the same injury. Smith is going to be a really, really big addition to the bullpen when he's eventually there. Um, and he's really going to relieve the stress off of Koji and, and Junichi Tozawa. But I, I really wouldn't be that worried. I think uh, you know, a lot of it hinges on whether or not Hanley Ramirez produces at the plate, and a lot of it hinges on whether or not Pablo Sandoval produces at the plate. Uh, but I mean, I, th- I think just up and down. I mean, you're you're going to have to expect you know Mookie Betts to, to uptick a little bit, and he's only you know, 22 years old, so you, you expect him to improve, and you expect Xander Bogarts to, to to flash that power potential that he really really showed in the minor leagues and hasn't really manifested itself at the big leagues at the big league level yet. Um, but there's a lot of positives with this team. You know, Hanley hasn't been a disaster yet at first base. He's actually looked pretty damn good at first base actually so far this spring in the, the limited amount of games that, that have been on uh, on MLB TV that I've watched. Um, you know, I think there's lots of reasons to be positive. So obviously, this this injury to Carson Smith is a big deal to the bullpen. But I, I, I really would generally be pretty optimistic when it comes to this team this year. You're the first person who doesn't seem to be thinking that the sky is falling. And I appreciate that because one of the things that definitely matters to me when I look at it is, first of all, Koji is not closing this year. It's going to be Kimbrel. So yeah. you don't need and Koji Kim- to be Kimbrel quite... Is, is so good. Kimbrel is really, really good. Yeah, Kimbrel is phenomenal. So I don't think that you need Koji to be quite as lights out as he's been in the past, as long as his arm doesn't fall off, which it could because he's old. Right. I but think if you get, they're going to be fine. But if you get 80% of Koji... Last year, like Koji was really good last year until he had the, the ball uh, hit off his wrist and he broke his wrist in that end of the season. He was really good last year. If you get 80% of what he was last year, he's he's one of the – he would have been the best seventh inning – one of the best seventh inning guys in the majors. And he's – like 80% of Koji this year would be one of the best setup guys in the majors this year. I, I mean, um, you know, you, uh, based, you know, as long as he doesn't like fall off, off the, uh, the waterfall in terms of production, but – I mean, Koji really maintains himself pretty well, and he doesn't seem like he doesn't seem like a kind of guy who would um, like. He seems like the kind of reliever who's going to have a gradual descent into retirement, uh, and he's not going to completely fall off uh, all at once. 
just based on the way he pitches, I mean, his his arsenal is completely non-dependent on velocity, and a lot of it is dependent on control. I mean, my other thing also is that people are freaking out about this Red Sox rotation. Don't they have all these really good young pitchers who are supposed to make an impact? I think the the, the ceiling of the the Red Sox rotation prospects has been overstated from the beginning, and I, I've been I've been someone who has you know there was this there was this point in time when everybody thought Henry Owens was potentially going to be had this ceiling when Red Sox fans were dreaming of Henry Owens being like this lefty ace, the next John Lester uh, kind of pitcher, and I really never saw that kind of ceiling for him. I saw him as a really really good three, which is obviously not a bad thing. Um, and I mean, so that's an incredibly valuable asset. But I never really saw Henry Owens as this, as this, uh, you know, ace type potential dude. I, I think Eduardo Rodriguez is the chance to get there, but I don't think. It, I mean, I think he, his ceiling is likely as a, as a pretty good number two starter. Um, and obviously, he's going to be on the DL to start the year, which is unfortunate for the team. Um, but Brian Johnson, he's going to be. Uh, his ceiling is probably a very good number three starter as well. Um, but his his floor is a little bit higher than Henry Owens is. Um, but I would honestly, the rotation is something to worry about this year because you never know what you're going to get out of Clay Buckholz. Uh, you never know what you're going to get out of Joe Kelly. Joe Kelly was pretty good last year towards the end of the season, but he was an absolute disaster. Uh, you know, we've seen Joe Kelly just absolutely blow up and be terrible. Um, and while Rick Porcell really did kind of have a, a bounce back in September um, and was really, you know, he, he came to the Red Sox and was trying to use his fastball a lot more as a tool and try to take up that velocity and get a lot more strikeouts, which is not how Rick Porcello pitched in Detroit. Uh, and so he kind of went back to his old ways in the last in the last month or so, and he started to pitch a lot better. Uh, he had a couple really, really good starts. So there's reason to be optimistic there, but, you know, you can't really place your bets on that as well. I mean, the only guy you can really completely depend on is Price, and Price has looked – Pretty good in the spring so far, and just you know, place a lot of value on on spring training performance. But you know, based on his track record, I mean, Price is one of the best top five pitchers in baseball. Um, but beyond that, I think there definitely is reason to to worry about the rotation. I guess, but I also think to an extent. Do you think that there is just necessarily in baseball right now a shift toward needing to have like those three or four elite pitchers? Because. What? At least in terms of the original way that I conceive of a rotation, maybe you have like one or two aces, but then you can have the rest of the guys fill in the gaps, you know? Like you have the, the Pedro and Schilling, and then you have guys who can sort of elevate the bottom of the rotation, but you don't need them to be much more than a three or a four. Sure, yeah. I mean, ideally, you want to have as many good pitchers as you possibly can. But if you look, I mean, a lot of teams are copying this Kansas City Royals model, and I'm not sure. Uh, I mean, the the market inefficiency in regards to relievers and just exploiting the the back ends of games is, is going to start going down just because all these teams are starting to build up these Super Bowl pens. Um, but I mean, if you look at that Royals rotation last year, there's not re- there wasn't really a definitive ace on that team. Uh, that team was made up of like Chris Young. And uh, a, a very a very mediocre Johnny Cueto in the playoffs and with the Royals last year, um, and the Red Sox. I mean, heading into the season, there was the whole like everybody is an ace or we don't have an ace type mentality, and I don't necessarily think that was uh, the wrong approach to take. It was in in today's baseball landscape. It's just that it wasn't the right group of pitchers 
um, because there was just so much variation between what you could have gotten out of those guys. Because when Joe Kelly is good, he's really, really good. And we saw it in the playoffs against the Red Sox in, in 2013 uh, when he was with the Cardinals. He threw he threw a couple he threw a gem against the Sox, and he, you know he can take it up to 98. As 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 Ben Carsley says on Twitter all the time, he, Joe Kelly has really good stuff, um, and that's not that's not untrue. Uh, but there, there just wasn't the, the right group of pitchers. And I, I, I think, obviously, you, you want to have as many great starting pitchers as possible, but it's not necessarily the, the foremost concern when it comes to winning uh, winning a championship right now. And maybe that's, that, that becomes a market inefficiency and people need to start loading up on the pitchers again. Uh, but right now, uh, given the current landscape, it you know, with the with the best teams in baseball, it doesn't necessarily have to be of the foremost concern to have like these three big guys at the top of the rotation. Taking a bit of a half step back, do you think that the Red Sox should be favored to win the AL East? Because that is one of the most yeah. competitive divisions in baseball. No, most definitely. Uh, I mean, I've been doing these previews. I'm, I'm starting to do these previews for over the monster over the next uh, two weeks, and I did the one on the Blue Jays uh, on Monday. Uh, and I, I think the Blue Jays are going to be by far the most, uh, the biggest competitor to the Red Sox in terms of uh, of the division, just because that lineup is just is just unbelievable. They have, you know, if you stick Edwin Encarnacion, Jose Batista, or Josh Donaldson. Uh, and even Troy Tulowitzki to a certain extent. If you stick them in most lineups in baseball, they immediately slot into the, the three or four slot. And they have all four of those guys in that lineup, which is just absolute. It's just unfathomable. Donaldson had a season last year that you could stick that season in the steroid era, uh, and it would still – like those numbers would still catch your eyes, which is insane. Um, and a lot of that had to do with like Donaldson moving out of Odako Coliseum to, to the uh, Rogers Center. Um but that team is is definitely someone to watch out for. Uh, I'm really I'm really really interested to see uh, how Marcus Stroman does coming off the uh, the ACL recovery because um, I think Stroman has the the potential ceiling of being an ace. He's just unbelievable stuff, great command, uh, and his secondary stuff is just really really good. And he's he's just a a really really great young pitcher. So that that Blue Jays team is definitely some a team to watch out for. But I mean. This whole the whole division in general is pretty strong uh, this year. Um, I mean, the the Orioles took spent a lot of money and kind of didn't really improve that much. Uh, the Yankees obviously are going to have a great bullpen uh, and and a, and a pretty strong lineup. Uh, but a lot of that is kind of actually dependent on whether or not A Rod repeats his, his great season last year. Uh, and and the Rays are they the Rays always have kind of found a way to like hover around, um, and they always seem to find great bullpen guys uh they out of out of the scrap heap um brad boxberger last year it's just i don't know how they do it but uh uh this division is incredibly strong um but that that blue jays team is definitely the one to watch out for in my eyes speaking of a rod he is going to retire after this year that's what they say on the on the the internet the thing where do you think he's going to get the most robust shall we say reception from fans i don't really know that's a that's a tough question i i maybe maybe seattle but i don't really know uh maybe maybe tampa because he's from like florida um a-rod's been just kind of fascinating over the last couple years because he's like really really done a good he's done a really good job of rehabilitating his image uh with the broadcasting and just this like 
very bizarre Twitter persona where he like posts photos of himself in a kind of endearing way. And then he posts photos of his family a lot. Um, he's like kind of had, he's gotten to the stage where Kobe Bryant is in his career, except he's like still good at baseball where they just like, don't have to give a crap anymore. And like, I think people really appreciate that. And, you know, even though A-Rod has all this like steroid drama around him, he didn't really throw anybody else under the bus. Like, uh, Lance Armstrong or Ryan Braun did like he didn't he didn't sue people he didn't uh, cause people to lose their jobs he kind of got into a self spiral of lies that really only affected his own uh, his own brand I mean I I, I, don't, I kind of really hate that word but I mean it, it really only affected him uh, and uh, I don't know A Rod's just fascinating I'm really I'm really excited to see what A-Rod does post-career, because I think he's just a really interesting person. He's clearly very articulate and really smart, and he was just, he was unbelievable on the postseason broadcast this year. He was one of my favorite parts of, of watching the World Series, honestly. Now, speaking of steroids as well, I find baseball fascinating because I think other than maybe basketball, there's this deep polarization between those who cover the game who are of a younger age and of an older age. How do you think the steroid era players are going to be viewed over the next few years? Like when we look back on say Bonds, McGuire, um, even A-Rod later in the game. I mean, these are guys who are going to be up for hall of fame votes in the coming years. Right. Although no McGuire's out, right. McGuire's done. Yeah. So McGuire can't be in the hall of fame. Do you think that that's going to be one of those things where as a s- sports writers of a certain age begin to age themselves out of writing about baseball and younger sports writers begin to take over, that we're going to be seeing a different historical perspective written? Because I'll be honest, like, and I've made this opinion very well known, I think that steroid era players deserve to be in the Hall of Fame if they're good enough. Um... And I think the fact Mark McGuire is not going to be in the Hall of Fame is crazy. I don't actually think Mark McGuire is necessarily a Hall of Fame player compared to his era. Um, mm. But that's kind of just besides the point. I mean, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head there um, in regards to the, the, the chasm between kind of the, the young writers and the older writers. Uh, if you – I mean, if you just like look at baseball Twitter as an entity and you look at the young people on there, guys like – I, I'm I'm friends with the the Cespedes barbecue guys and they like absolutely worship Barry Bonds uh, and rightfully like if you go back and look at Barry Bonds' statistics from like 1997 1990 I mean 1998 through through like 2004 they like it is just like you can't even wrap your head around them like his OBP was like in the six the six fifties like it doesn't make any sense um, the numbers were just absolutely incredible uh, and. I think a lot of it has to do with um, nostalgia to a certain extent because I think, you know, in, in kind of all aspects of life, we uh, – people generally t- uh, tend to uh, put put the things that they grew up with on a pedestal in a pedestal and that's why like my friends still play Nintendo 64 and play GameCube uh, and like love the Pokemon games is because like we we grew we grew up on these things uh, and so we like worship them to a certain extent. So there's a generation of of sports writers that are starting to come of age uh, and have jobs and hold important positions that grew up with these steroid era guys and that was the game at its purest. The game at its purest form is like when you are 
first learning about baseball when you're in third grade through like the end of high school. Um, and, and you were kind of looking at these guys as, as idols. Uh, and so as you see like these younger sports writers age into being in a position to vote for the hall of fame, I think there's definitely going to be a shift towards, uh, kind of disregarding the, the quote unquote cheating. Well, it is cheating. Um, that, that comes in hand in hand with the steroid era. And part of it also is that, you know, when you are growing up and you're young, you're going to gravitate toward the game with the most excitement. And at that time, baseball was crazy exciting because you yeah, had the home run chase. You had every single night. I remember we had extra innings in my house because my dad, who got me into sports, was a huge Red Sox fan. And I remember that I would be watching extra innings, the Red Sox game on one TV, and then I'd like run over to the desktop computer and be refreshing baseball tonight to like get all the scores up to date. Anytime there was a home run, uh, I would always make sure that I had that down. I would like keep count of like all the home runs and all the statistics and stuff. Like that was a very, very exciting time for baseball. And I'll be honest, I have fallen a little bit away from baseball. I still follow what I can, but definitely it isn't my number one sport anymore because the game has gotten a little bit more boring and a little bit harder for me to make time for um, compared to other sports. And that's just an Ethan opinion. I said it when we talked to Jamie Neal a couple of weeks ago as well. Well, that, well that's interesting because like, I think the game has become a lot more pitching. Well, it's, it's obviously become much more pitching dominated. And I think pitching is a much headier thing than hitting is because you like hitting is just like you swing the bat and you hit the baseball far and you get really excited because the ball went far but when it comes to pitching like in order to make really good pitching exciting uh like nothing is going on uh like nobody's hitting the baseball and that's what makes pitching exciting uh and a lot of the interesting stuff that comes with with pitching is like pitch sequence and uh and seeing like a, a dope curveball on like a one-two count um and you have to be patient for that. And our generation, like the people growing up now, and, the, and especially with Twitter and stuff, people are very, very impatient. Um, and people are just kind of waiting for that highlight. And very infrequently, unless you get some sort of like ridiculous Jose Fernandez, like breaking ball, there's very infrequently a pitching highlight. We did a very high-level preview here where we sort of jumped over everything. But I still want to get your World Series pick. Uh, who do you think is going to win it all? I love the Astros. So did I. I'm all about Astros-Cubs. I absolutely love the Astros. I think Doug Fister has a chance to be like one of the best signings of the offseason. Uh, and he's a reason why, like, there's a reason why I've picked him up on literally all my fantasy baseball teams. Because, uh, you know, he came for super, super cheap. And uh, he's had a he's had a rough couple of years. But, he, you know, I think he still has it in him to be, like, a very, very good pitcher. And I'm head over heels in love with Carlos Correa. Like, that dude is, is such a throwback to the 90s shortstops with – with Jeter and A-Rod and Nomar at their peaks, he hits for so much power. Uh, and he's he's very high energy, and he plays the game in a really exciting way. Um, and that team in general is just super, super deep um, and is just filled with really fun young players. And I'm just I – absolutely, I just like, absolutely love the Astros in just every single facet of the game. I think they're an absolutely – they're just a really fun organization to watch. And they're really like a, a guinea pig in many regards to the the sabermetric, uh, the sabermetric doubters, because uh, they, you know, they they've hired a ton of a very sabermetric oriented people, Jeffrey Linau and Kevin Goldstein, running the the player the baseball ops department there, 
uh, and the player development stuff. Uh, you know, they've it's really really interesting. It'll be they they had the whole tanking strategy for a couple of years, and uh, you know, people really kind of hate hate when when teams do that. I mean, people hate the 76ers for for kind of going into this this really really deep black hole, and it still hasn't really paid off for them. But for the Astros, like. You saw them beat bad for a five-year stretch, and then you saw them in you know one year with all these players kind of coming up at once, turning around really quickly. And now there's the, they're this really really exciting team to watch with this with this great rotation and Dallas Keuchel, who's a very offbeat kind of top of the rotation guy with this enormous beard and is not a traditional ace in any sense uh, of the imagination. He throws like high 80s, low 90s, and has just really really great off-speed stuff, and is you know not like the prototypical Clay Kershaw type lefty ace. Um, and so just in, in so many facets, this Astros team is fun to watch and they still have, they still have a ton of young players coming up through the minor league system, which should really be frightening for a lot of people in major league baseball, I think. Yeah. I'm all about Astros Cubs. I think that'll be a fun world series. I love the Cubs too, especially like having grown up on the, uh, on Theo Epstein's Red Sox and like, I'm from the same, same town as Theo Epstein. So he's like a demigod, uh, to a lot of people in my town, uh, in Brookline, Mass. Uh, and so I, I'm just absolutely rooting for the Cubs to to hopefully get that World Series championship at some point you know, during the Theo the Theo reign because uh, it would be awesome just to see Theo break these two insane curses. I'm about 95 percent sure that we talked about this at one point, but my dad is from Brookline, and really he cool. went to uh, he went to synagogue with Theo Epstein back in the day. Theo Epstein's dad, I think, actually. So yeah, yeah small world. Yeah, he is a yeah. god there. Like, it's not yeah, even funny. Yeah, him and uh, Conan O'Brien and, uh, and uh, Robert Kraft, and now Brady lives in Brookline, too. Uh, Euclid. Uh, yeah, it's 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 super, super interesting. Yeah, Euclid will forever be my favorite Red Sox guy. He's just so crazy. I mean, I really also agree with you on the Astros. I love how angry they make certain people, A, and B, the strategy is brilliant. Because in many ways, they are emblematic of throwback baseball because they found that there was a market inefficiency with those guys who, you know, they may strike out sometimes, but they can also put a charge into the ball. They're the anti-A's in many ways. And that is just so smart to build a team. Like, that's my thing with the Sixers. I think they're accumulating talent, but in reality, that talent doesn't run counter to how the NBA is now. They're not really finding a market inefficiency. And the thing with the Sixers is that there's not really a a big – there's not really a a really solid player development system in the NBA, whereas there's a very, very established player development system in in Major League Baseball. And so guys like Jaleel Okafor and uh, not Embiid – not not really Embiid, but uh, Nerlens Noel, they're not really – I mean the thing missing on that team uh, other than like – they don't. They didn't really have a point guard. Now they have like Ish Smith, who's like a you know an average guy over there. But they don't have anybody to like get them the ball so they can develop. Uh, and so it's really it's different with baseball, just because like you see Carlos Correa go up through the minor leagues and you see George Springer go up through the minor leagues. Um, one of my favorite things about Carlos Correa, just to go off on a separate tangent, is that everybody thought that the Astros were going to draft Mark Appel that year, uh, and they really surprised a lot of people by drafting Correa to sign uh, to to sign him under the the slot so they could save a little money. Uh, and then they drafted Appel the next year, which was really funny. Uh, and then Appel got traded to the Phillies uh, for uh, for Ken Giles. Um, 
but I mean, Appel has kind of looked like a bust in terms of uh, in terms of prospect value. But it, they've kind of hit on everything so far, and it's been it's been uh, pretty pretty entertaining to watch from a just like a player development standpoint. And again, speaking of marketing efficiencies, I do think that one team has figured out how to utilize the NBA's development league, and that's the Spurs. Because what they do is that they bring the same system they play in San Antonio, they have their own team, and they develop people in that system. Like Danny Green, that's how Danny Green became a really good player. So I do think that marketing efficiencies are still a little bit underrated in certain other sports, and that's why I'm really intrigued to see what DePodesta does in Cleveland. Because I'm not sure if he's the best football mind in the world, but I think he knows how to find marketing efficiencies. And I... Think that there are some in the NFL. The Patriots have done a great job over the years at finding those inefficiencies. And the slot guys, they get they get all of these slot receivers who yeah. are who are super productive in Tom Brady's uh, system. And their entire thing is how they play offense: run three yards and then just get open. Uh, TJ Mo was talking about it on Christopher Price's radio show, which is also really good. Christopher Price at Cape Leaguer. No, he's at C Price NFL now. He's not at Cape yeah. Leaguer. Uh, he's great. He's a really, really good guy, uh, and people should follow him as well. But he had a really interesting guest on with TJ Mo, and Mo was saying that you know in the Patriot system, when you're a receiver, especially when you're playing in that slot position, your job is to run three to five yards and get open because Tom's going to get the ball away as soon as possible. And there's a bit of a misconception about how quote unquote difficult it is to learn that offensive scheme. And I don't want to get too much of a tangent here. But it isn't because the roots are hard. It's because you and Brady have to be seeing the same thing. It's or the, else it's it doesn't all work. It's all about timing. It's all, it's about all timing. timing. Yeah. If you don't if you don't get on the same page as him with, with the timing, it's you can't you can't work. Uh I mean that's why uh what's his face? The Tampa Bay receiver who like retired right after because he just like couldn't make a work in New England. Galloway, Joey Galloway? Yeah. Right. I mean, that's like why he didn't work because he couldn't find the timing with Brady and Brady was like, get this guy out of here. He doesn't work here. Uh, and that's why like that's I mean, like that's why guys like Wes Welker, who who's like pretty decent in, in Miami, uh, came here and his chemistry with Tom is great. And that's why they immediately clicked it off. I mean, like you take Julian Edelman, you move him to any other system. And I don't think he's he I don't think he's 75 percent of what he is in New England, just because I think he has a chemistry and a timing with Tom Brady that's been established over the last six, seven years. That is you can't you can't just like you can't just like create that in a lab. Like it has to be something that you earn and then you develop over time. If you move Edelman anywhere else, I think he's just a return specialist. Maybe like a third or fourth receiver, like Jeremy Curley, who by the way I heard the Patriots were looking into uh, before he signed with Detroit. But he's someone else who I think they definitely could have taken a look at. Um, there are some receiver prospects, and as we get closer to the draft, we'll be talking about a lot of them. But for now. We're going to move on to the society portion of the podcast. And, you know, I talked about how impressive you are. I mean, you are a college student and you have done so many things. You're going to be at the Washington Post this year as well, which is so cool. Uh, yeah, I'm super excited. It's about really, that. really exciting. I can't wait to hear tales about that experience. Uh, yeah, I still don't really know how that happened, to be honest. I kind of threw in my application when I was going through my internship apps uh, just for the hell of it, and I didn't really consider that as a even a realistic possibility, and when I got the call that I got it, I just like really didn't know how to respond. Yeah, it, it happened because you have great Sports Real Boston clips that they unearthed on the dark web, and they <laughs> just decided to hire you because of it. 
Uh, and also, you're, I mean, your over-the-monster stuff is great. Uh, you wrote an amazing piece on Xander Bogarts, which I think everyone should read. It was really, really good a couple of years ago. Uh, but anyway, you're also Korean-American. And we had yes. Rich Hill on a while ago, and he talked about his experience as an Asian-American journalist. How exactly do you think your background has affected you as you've tried to make your way in this field? Yeah, I, I mean, it's something that I think about a lot, actually. Uh, especially, it's something that I really thought about a lot within, uh, you know, I thought about a lot when I was applying to internships, because I knew everybody was going to write, when it comes to internship essays, something along the lines of, you know, I love storytelling, and, uh, you know, I've wanted to be a journalist since I was a little kid, and all of those things are 100% true to me, and I, I love telling these stories and having the opportunity to talk to people um, about about their backgrounds and all that stuff. Uh, but I wanted to separate myself uh, in some way, shape, or form, and, and what made me different from the rest of the pack. And so I wrote up my internship app, and I, I have that. I think I have it up on my Medium account uh, about about my kind of my background as an Asian American uh, and the idea of of media representation within the Asian American community. And so, uh, I, something that I like experienced a lot through high school was. Um, when I would say that – and something I experienced in college a lot too is – not a lot, but have experienced in college is, is uh, you know, if, if you say that you wanted to go into to media, it always kind of raises an eyebrow a little bit. Uh, there were these uh, – there were people in, in like family, family friends, parents in, in church. Uh, and I would be like, oh, I want to, I want to go into journalism, and they'll be like, oh, but you're, you're going to Cornell, like you don't want to like pursue pre med, or you don't want to pursue pre law, or you do the engineering programs, like no, like that, that doesn't have any interest to in me. Uh, I love sports, uh, and I, I couldn't really imagine myself doing anything else. Um, and that, that kind of thing has, has kind of really stuck a chord with me, and, and I, I wanted to play a role in help changing that narrative uh, within Asian American people. Uh, in media, uh, and it's the reason why I really look up to people like uh, like Pablo Torre on ESPN and Jay Caspian Kang and Mina Kimes, who is just like what is is great. Um, I want to see more Asian American people not only like writing, but also on TV and doing radio and doing podcasts and reestablish the norms of, as to what people think Asian Americans can do. Because you know, if I was, I would be a terrible doctor. Like I'm so bad at science, and <laughs> I, I I just would. That kind of stuff just has no interest to me, um, and I think it really hurts a lot of people, um, lots of young age Americans when they feel like they've been pigeonholed into this kind of uh, this box. Uh, and obviously, like I'm very young, I'm 20 years old. Uh, I don't really necessarily have the experience to say like X, Y, and Z. I've had these experiences uh, uh, in media, and but my hope is like I can. I mean, one of the main things that drives me to do the work that I hopefully do down the road is. Uh, some 13-year-old, 15-year-old kid uh, out there in America is, is watching is watching you know a sports show on TV, and they uh, they see like me on TV talking about baseball or whatever uh, that I'm talking about that day, uh, and they can think about hey like I don't have to I don't have to be X Y and Z like I can be a sports writer. Um, that's my hope at the end of the day, uh, and so I don't really see treatment that differently within um within the journalism field because i think once you're in it you're just kind of in it uh like if when i was when i was like in the in the clubhouses for baseball um like you obviously stick out which is a good and a bad thing uh in that like if you do something different uh people notice uh 
um, this was an interesting experience. Like when I don't, I'm Korean American. I'm not Japanese. Uh, <laughs> I would like, I, I once went over to Koji Uhar and like asked for a translator and people like, there was some people that I think assumed that I was like speaking in Japanese to him. And so like when they saw the translator come over, like I had like 30 seconds to myself cause they thought I was going to be speaking Japanese to him. And then once the translator came over, like people started swarming my like little thing and then they turned into like a mosh pit for Koji. Um, so they're like these little things that people assume. But I think Jay, Jay Caspian King wrote about this, uh, I think, when he was writing about the, the Peter Liang trial um, and the, 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 cop, the Asian cop who who's, was on trial for, uh, for killing somebody. Uh, and, and Asian people – and I think he's written about this for when he wrote about Jeremy Lin too on Grayland. Uh, but Asian Americans kind of fall in this weird like middle ground between white America and black America. And so – I've kind of tried to use that to my advantage. I think, like, I'm very much, I very much have my feet in, in, in very much both culture circles. I think I, you know, I listen to a lot of hip hop, but I also all my friends back home are Jewish. Um, Brookline, so, Brookline is a very Jewish town. Yes, it is. So, so like, I was able, so I, like, I was able to. I, I wrote this feature on on SB Nation about Mookie Betts, which is like done wonders for me in, in multiple regards uh, in terms of just kind of job prospects. Um, but I kind of established that ground with Mookie just because, like, I went up to him and said hi, like, hey, we're both kind of, like, the youngest people here, and then we just, like, talked about hip-hop. And I can't imagine, like, most of the, the writers on the Red Sox be, like, going up to Mookie Bits and just, like, BSing about, like, our favorite Kanye album, or, like, 2 Chains or Chance the Rapper. Like, I introduced Mookie Bits to Chance the Rapper, like, I can't imagine like anybody else on the on the on the beat at that time like doing that. Uh, not that I consider myself a beat writer, but like being able to like kind of you like put your feet in multiple places has been something that's been beneficial to me. But I mean, I've it was just kind of my convoluted thoughts on a lot of different things in terms of just being an Asian American, uh, hopefully a, a professional journalist. Um, but there's definitely been its pros and cons. Uh, I think most of the cons have fallen outside of kind of the journalism circles, but you know, uh, I'm still 20 years old and there's still a lot of ex- uh, things to experience. And, um, there's probably going to be prejudicial stuff that happens down the road. And, um, you kind of, that kind of comes with the territory. I-, I can imagine Dan Shaughnessy going up to Mookie Betts and just talking with him about future. Now, now that <laughs> image is in my head, I want it to happen so badly. Uh, no, that's super cool. And I totally agree with what you said, I think meeting players where they are is something that a lot of beat writers don't do, but that relatability definitely helps to have people open up to you. I remember when I was doing the Bruins for WBRU, I once talked to Miroslav Shatan after a game, and uh, first of all, one of the nicest people ever. But he was sort of like being a little bit, um, he he was being a little bit like quiet. He wasn't opening up to me at all. So eventually I just started talking to him about Slavic history. (laughs) We just started talking about the history of his country and I was in a class for European history in school and I was like, why don't you tell me a little bit more about like this experience, that experience, and, and was your family involved at all? And most of it, I think he just got a little bit of a chuckle out of it, but we had a better relationship that year after that because 
all of a sudden he was like, and I was covering a lot of Bruins games that year, he knew that I got his background. And there was once a beat reporter after a game who was talking about Shatan and uh, Krejci, David Krejci, and their ability to communicate well on the line together because they were both in the same line and they were playing really well. And he's like, it's like you're speaking the same language out there. Now, for those who don't know, David Krejci is Czech. The Czechs and the Slovaks, of which Shatan is Slovak, do not get along. Uh, there is a history there. So, Bert <laughs> Shatan is like, uh, we don't really get along. And then he just like points to me and is like, that guy knows. <laughs> because we had already talked, uh, shared uh, some past experiences. So, I, yeah, I definitely think, first of all, your point about the feature that you put on bets, uh, right features, features are great. They're really challenging. They let you experience things. I need to write more of them. Um, but you definitely challenge yourself, get interviews, put together some really awesome shit, have an editor, do all that. It helps you, especially if you're in college. That's yeah. point A. Uh, I just want to give a shout-out to my editor on the Mookie Betts piece. Elena Bergeron was just a godsend. She, is, she made me seem like a much better writer than I am. I've heard amazing things about her. She's unbelievable. She's a, a fantastic editor. All right, well... Uh, I'll have to add her to my list of people who I want to edit for me. I've been lucky, but I'll have to add her to my list. Uh, and then point B, yeah, get to know the players a little bit. I mean, the great thing about Twitter is that it is easier to get to know them. Like, for example, Randy Gregory last year uh, interacted with a lot of people on Twitter before the draft. Moving on, uh, you are in the college newspaper scene. Um, there are a lot of people who listen who are in college or just starting in college. What... Can you describe what it's like to uh, to work at the Cornell Sun? Yeah. Uh, the Cornell Sun is the thing that probably takes the majority of my time on campus in regards to campus activities um, and is the reason, like, why I've cut back on doing, like, Red Sox, more Red Sox stuff in general. Um, th- it's, uh, it's a daily newspaper. Uh, which is definitely a novelty and is probably not going to be the case moving forward. Uh, by probably the end of 2016, probably won't be a daily newspaper anymore. Um, but it's super, super intense just because it is a daily newspaper and you're going to class and you have all these exams and prelims and uh, all this stuff and you're trying to put out a newspaper every single day. Um, I ran for editor-in-chief uh, this this past semester didn't end up getting it. it was a really close vote um, when it came to election time but uh, it is super super intense and you've got to kind of balance all of these things in terms of keeping people happy and uh, the campus climate has been really really odd uh, over the, the course of this semester um, our our president our female so we had our first female president uh, inaugurated uh, this past year. So this was her first academic calendar year and she passed away of colon cancer nine months into her term. Uh, and so it was a huge hectic time and she was making these decisions before she got really sick that were kind of really pissing people off across campus. Um, and so kind of like balancing, uh, the, the kind of the, the politics with the student leaders and putting out editorials and also like I'm more on the sports side, I cover the the football team here and the men's uh, hockey team here, and I kind of have my hands in a lot of things in terms of like writing features and stuff. Um, but I've definitely pissed off my my fair share of players with things that I've written. Um, I think I've been kind of one of the more critical 
sports writers. Uh, I'm I definitely, and it's, and it's different here just because like there aren't as many people pursuing journalism as there as there are at a place like Boston University where I won my freshman year. Um, and so like there's less people kind of taking things seriously, but the kids who take it seriously, especially at a school like Cornell, like they're going to put their absolute, uh, they're going to whole asset um, rather than half asset. Uh, and so it's uh, it's definitely a really intense atmosphere, especially being a daily newspaper. That sounds like my experience at Brown, where when I worked for BRU Sports, you know, we might have had six people, but we were the six most passionate driven people ever. Uh, and people who don't necessarily go to these huge journalism schools like Mizzou or in Newhouse at Syracuse or Northwestern, but go to these smaller schools, they are bigger fish in smaller ponds. Could you give us some insight into, like, what the campus atmosphere is like right now? Because I know at Brown, from the friends of mine who are still there, college campuses right now, just in general, there seems to be this very, I guess, an anti-authority sort of bent. And I'd be interested to hear your perspective on what's really fueling that at Cornell. Yeah, I actually had this discussion with uh, with Mina Kimes uh, over breakfast a couple uh, like a week ago. That is, uh, and she was quite a humble brag. <laughs> and um, <laughs> quite a name drop. And uh, she like she was she, she was she kind of asked the exact same question, and uh, it's definitely on ice. Uh, I don't I don't think the racial tensions are as as bad as they are across campuses at a place like Yale, uh, where things like really, really, really boiled over last semester. Um, but, um, it's, uh, it's, there's definitely, I think there's, I think there's some sort of anti-authoritarian twinge. And I think there's, um, I think that the, the PC stuff being politically correct stuff is starting to put people on edge. Um, because like, I think it's very important to be politically correct in many respects, but I think like there are areas where people kind of take that too far. And I think like to a certain extent, um, like I, th- I think the idea, like I think there, I think trigger warnings are like definitely a real thing, but I think some people overplay it uh, to a certain extent uh, to the point where like people are way, way, way too cognizant of it. Um, I don't know. It's really, it's really, it's a really interesting time in general, I think, to be a, a college student. Um, I, I and mean, the, the kind of the racial stuff has that that was like spreading across Mizzou, and I think there was a lot of demonstrations at Ithaca College across town uh, with that kind of stuff. And I don't think it's as prevalent as it is here, but it's um, people are certainly on edge, and people are. I mean, like the the campus. I mean, everybody wants Bernie Sanders to be elected here, which I don't. I don't think is going to happen, but. People are people are definitely concerned with with the state of the country. I'm getting the same vibe as well, and I, I think part of it is, and I've barely been out of college for three years. I graduated in 2013, so I'm still pretty well connected with people there, and I feel like I am not too jaded by the real world yet. But I, I sort of think that there are certain things that people who were not born in the 90s or later don't really have an understanding of right now. Or maybe I would say like late 80s. A good example of this is that a friend of mine, and I talked about this on Twitter a while ago, 
uh, decided last year to stop using gender, stop referring to themselves with gender specific pronouns. Yeah, that's like something that I've started to become more like that was not something I was aware of until like this past year, really. So, uh, and I'm going to butcher it, and I'm really, really sorry because I, I've tried to be very respectful of this. Um, the pronoun that they prefer to go by is X Y R. Je- oh, I've never heard that. Before. Yeah, it's a it's a brown thing, I guess. I'm not entirely sure. Um, but I remember well, that I <laughs> yeah. So I was reading something that they had written a first person um, reflection, and I remember that someone had shared it on Facebook, and I'm friends with a lot of this person's family. And the the comments that anyone over the age of, like, 28 was writing back was like, who the hell is this person? Like, what are they even doing? Like, this makes no sense. Like, I can't read this. And under 28, I was like, oh, okay, this is a good point. They're focused on the content more than the pronouns themselves. Yeah, I think that in some ways it's a very libertarian-oriented time um, from a personal liberties perspective that is sweeping across these campuses, and I think actually it bodes well for a lot of the libertarian-leading politicians if they're able to get their message across the right way. Um, But at the same time, I agree with you. I think there's a feeling that, on a personal standpoint, people deserve autonomy over whatever they want to do, however they want to refer themselves and whatnot. But from a greater societal standpoint, that there's a need to add some equity, and add a chance for everyone to have an opportunity. Um, which is an interesting blend. Because I don't think that you can say it's necessarily entirely liberal, because I don't think that personal autonomy is necessarily a liberal perspective, if that makes sense. Yeah, I get that. Um, but anyway, yeah, we'll see how that goes, and I don't want to speak for all people uh, of my generation, but that that's sort of how I perceive some perceptions going uh, in terms of why people on college campuses and why general a lot of people have fallen into the vote for Bernie Sanders camp, at least from my age group. I personally haven't decided who I'm voting for yet, so I'm, I'm still thinking about it carefully. Uh, society portion, the stuff portion are going to kind of intermingle because... I think that this is a really good segue. We mentioned that you are doing a, the Doing It For Bartolo podcast, uh, which is a great podcast that people should also listen to. You've had some amazing guests on there. You've had Jason Stark, Tom Vertucci, Mina, who you mentioned earlier, Jay Caspian Kane. I think the biggest guest we got was, was Buster Olney. Uh, and Buster was, that was like one of the, that, that was probably the most fun that I've had doing a podcast was with Buster. And he was fantastic. Yeah, that's hero status. Um, yeah, so I guess you've talked to all these really, really great writers. Like, successful, experienced, they've done it all. What's the most interesting lesson that you've learned on your podcast thus far? Everybody is just, like, so generous with their time. Uh, like, at the beginning, uh, I was, like, putting together a list of people that I wanted to contact and to get on the show in the first couple of episodes. And, like, at the beginning, like, this was... Not really anything. Like for the first uh, five episodes, it was just kind of a podcast that I kind of paid for out of my own pocket uh, and hosted on Libsyn uh, that didn't really have very many li- – like had 
maybe topped out at like 100, 200 listeners per episode. Uh, and now it's like hosted by the Hardball Times. So like it has a reputation now, which is like nice. And it has like this guest list where I can like dip into and be like, hey, if I'm going to approach a person about coming on the show, like, hey, I've had this person on, like, would you be willing to come on too? And so like it gets easier to get on guests. But uh, I mean, a lot of the stuff at the beginning was like, personal favors like i reached out to jay and mina over twitter and was just like hey i'm starting a podcast talking about journalism and like asking about like your careers and stuff like would you be willing to come on and they were like yeah sure like here is an hour of my time here you go um and they were so they were so generous and nice with it uh and um that kind of has started to snowball into like more and more people coming on and is hopefully going to snowball into more interesting people coming on down the road i want to kind of uh uh, kind of diversify my portfolio in terms of the number of the types of people that I want on the podcast. I want to have more screenwriters on and people who write for TV shows and talk more about pop culture. Cause that's like a, that's a segment of stuff that I want to do more writing in and more journalism type stuff in, in general. Um, but it's been like an absolute blast to have these people on. And I mean, they've been just so, so gracious with their time. Um, and I think that's, like all of these, all the people that I've had on the podcast so far have been very successful people uh, in my eyes. And the fact that they're so willing to give time to a college student, you know, doing this podcast out of my dorm room uh, has been uh, very humbling. I totally concur. And for me, as I've set up this podcast, and now we're about 14 episodes in, it's also been really humbling in some ways. That first of all, pretty much anyone who I've asked to come on has immediately agreed to come on, or they say, maybe not this week, but I want to come on in a future week or whatnot. Um, it really does show that there are people who want to talk to you, and they want their voice to be heard, and this is a space for people to have their voices heard and talk about whatever they want, and I, yeah, I think your like, podcast... I, I, I cold email Tom Verducci. Like, I've, I have some sort of connection to a bunch of these people. Like, I've met them or, like, follow mutual followers on Twitter. Um, but, like, I cold emailed Tom Verducci. I found his SI email and just emailed him. And he sent me back an email, like, two hours later. I was like, yeah, sure. Like, let's set up a time. And it was it was awesome. Like, Verducci is, like, one of my baseball writing idols. So it was, it was, uh, it was, it was really, it was really great to see that. Yeah, and I'm hoping that uh, I'll also continue to, to diversify and get a wider variety of people on. I've had a lot of football people on, some baseball people on, hoping to uh, to continue to grow out the portfolio. I'm really excited to hear what you have to say or what other people have to say about screenwriting and music writing and stuff like that because that's a fascinating space. And speaking of moving to the stuff portion, we're going to talk about the life of Pablo for a second. I actually might be dropping something on this for in a little bit. I emailed people at Playmaker Mentality, and I was like, I want to write about the life of Pablo. This was about three weeks ago, and I'm still trying to figure out uh, how to finish up my review. And I'm hoping I'll finish it up this week. It's been a little bit busy. I've had a lot going on, but no excuses. It'll be coming soon, hopefully. Uh, maybe it's already up. Who knows? But what was your biggest takeaway from that album? Because I definitely uh, have a big takeaway, and I want to hear yours first. So I have a couple of takeaways. I think the first thing that really stands out just is that uh, it, this this album seems like in many ways uh, like an amalgamation of like all of the different styles that he's kind of collected over the last 
however many years over the last 15 years in terms of just if you go from uh, college dropout to Jesus, like every there's influences from all of those albums in Life of Pablo, which is really fascinating. Um, and in many ways, like this is the first album where he doesn't try to reinvent the direction of music, um, which is super super fascinating. I've like I wasn't the hugest fan. Like I appreciated Jesus as like a work of art. Um, but I'm not somebody who's just going to be like blasting Jesus, uh, on any given day. Like I'm much more of a beautiful, dark, twisted fantasy, uh, kind of guy. And it was, uh, I think it was, it was really cool to see like a lot of these young people on this album. Like, I mean, like Chance the Rapper is like my favorite person in music today by like a long, like by a lot. And so like seeing him on the opening track and like having, I think the best verse on the album, uh, on Ultralight Beam was like a thrill for me. Um, and so like the fact that if you watch the SNL performance, like it feels like to a, of, uh, to a very, uh, to a certain degree that he was like handing off this baton as like the Chicago rapper from two chance in that performance. Cause he like had that first verse and he like sang the, the, like the establishing chorus. And then he could, like kind of just like stood off on the side of stage and like saw you saw Kirk Franklin do his thing and then you saw Chance come on and he was just like absolutely rocking out to Chance's verse. Um, and so those are that was just like kind of the the two major things I kind of took away from the first however many listens of Life of Pablo. You think Kanye wants to hand off that baton? I think I think he's looking towards bigger things. Like I think he's he's like if you just look at the the kind of things he's he's talking about on Twitter, it's like, he wants to get on Steve Jobs' level, like, he, he's grown past, like, being the, the big guy from Chicago, like, he wants to be the big guy in the world now, like, he wants to be, he wants to be, like, a, like, a multimedia mogul, like, a tech mogul, he has that, he had that weird game planning thing that he tweeted out, where he, like, had his plan for, like, world domination, basically, and taking over all of the industries, um, like, I think his sights are, are bigger than just Chicago now, like, being the guy from Chicago. Like, I, want, I think he's setting the sights of, like, being the the innovator for, like, the entire country. And whether or not that's, like, a feasible goal is, like, very, very, very questionable. Um, but I think his, his he's focused on something much bigger than just being the guy from Chicago now. I think that was, like, him in a metaphorical way semi-passing the baton off to Chance uh, through this song. Well, if he's passing off to Chance, I am totally fine with that, because like you, uh, Chance is one of my big three right now. It's him, Kanye, and Frank. All of them are on this album. Frank, please make something. I need it in my life. Um, please. So, my thoughts, and I'm not going to share all of them, I think that your point about Kanye wanting to be bigger than rap uh, is really interesting, and I need to, like, think about that for a little bit in terms of how it circulates with my personal read of the album. I think that, first of all, can we agree that Ultralight Beams is the best song on the album? It's it's definitely top three. Uh, I would I'd probably say it's my favorite, but like there is a couple songs that are in contention for me. Alright, so for me it's the best song. I don't think it's very close. I think that is vintage Kanye to me. That is college dropout, gospel, just like these beautiful, beautiful samples, uh, these beautiful guests, um, and Chance's verse is amazing. I really do think, and it's a happy song. I mean, that is Kanye's, like, w- this is a God dream. That is Kanye's happiness. 
originally that song was supposed to be the last song on the album, and then he switched it and made it the first song. And to me, that makes me think Kanye's not done making rap yet. I personally think it should have been the last song on the album, because I think it hasn't been a bad year for Kanye, and it just... It's been a very good year for Kanye. It's been a very, very good year for Kanye, and I have a theory, and I'm going to get into this in my review, and I think part of this might speak to why he wants to try all these new things and really does have these higher aspirations. There's a point with a lot of rappers where they run out of adversity to write about. And I think Kanye is getting to that point. Oh, I 100%. And like he, he's a family now. He's living a really good life. He has two he's, kids. He's married to the third most famous woman in the world uh, after the queen and that lady from England. Um, <laughs> I mean, yeah, he just – he doesn't really need – not need, but it's a little bit like Jay-Z where I feel like he's sort of gone past that tipping point and it's time – for him to, to to rethink what he's writing about. And I think overall, I mean, I thought Life of Pablo was a pretty good album. I think that the features, by and large, were more impressive to me than Kanye's verses, which happens on a lot of albums. I'm not sure it's happened as consistently as it was on this album. I just I wish... Think it was also designed that way, too. Like, yeah. I think... I think a lot of it was designed for, to be shining off guys like Chance and shining off guys like Designer. Ty. Uh, like, well, Designer, I hate Designer. <laughs> um, yeah, he's just like, I, not a fan. Um, yeah, but I think that when you sort of pair it with the fact maybe he's going on to bigger and better things, I, I understand maybe why he wants to pass off that baton. Uh, and I think that's something that I'm definitely taking into consideration as I rethink this album a little bit. I do wish that Ultralate Beams was the last song on the album because I think that Kanye does deserve a happy ending or at the very least a happy interlude, especially after the year he's had. And I think he took that away from himself by reforming the album. He's wanted to say, I still have stuff to do. Instead, he puts Fade at the end, which I love Fade. I think it's a really, really good song. I don't think that's an end of the album song. I don't think it's a particularly memorable song at all. Like, I think... I think No More Parties in L.A. is infinitely more memorable. 30 Hours is, like, one of my favorite songs from the album. Uh, Real Friends, I, I love Real Friends uh, and Waves. Those are, like, my five favorite songs from the album, probably. Yeah, personally, I... The song that I did not like, I didn't like Waves. I don't know why. I love there was something about Waves that I didn't like, and I maybe need to re-listen to it. Maybe need to give it a second, third, fourth chance. I still haven't been able to completely wrap my head around it. I thought 100 Hours was really good, although I wish Andre 3000 actually sang on it. Um, I mean, I think Wolves was good. I just, I think that his rap about Mary and Joseph in a club was stupid. Um, I think a lot of his raps on this album were stupid. Yeah, I mean, that like, it wasn't, it wasn't his best. We can agree it wasn't his best. I'll have my full review up on Playmaker Mentality at some point. Maybe already. I don't know yet. But, yeah, I mean, I think overall this definitely was one of his uh, more interesting endeavors, and we'll have to see what he continues to do next. I just... it's And it's still, like, it's like an amorphous album. Like, he's still changing it. Yeah, which is weird, and he should let people listen to it not on Tidal, because that's not democratizing music and whatever. I have Tidal thoughts, too, but we can move on. And Frank, release an album. That's my final rap take. Please release a new album. Um... I want to end it because you studied abroad in Spain last summer. 
Yes, I did. And, uh, yeah, you Spain's awesome. Espanol. Yeah, where, where in Spain were you? Yeah, so I was in Madrid for six weeks. So, um, yeah, how was it? Like, what were, what was your favorite thing that happened in Spain? Uh, that you can talk about on this podcast? Uh, I think, like, I'm not, I'm not really a big drinker, so, like, I don't really have, I'm not really a drinker at all, uh, and I'm under 20. I'm under 21, but it's, it's legal over there, uh. I mean, I'm not really a drinker to begin with, but... You don't um, have to justify anything anymore. This is a, this is a safe space, and it was legal there, so you're good. Um, I think the most amusing thing, and this has nothing to do with my studies, is that, like, I would be up to... Up until, like, 4.30 in the morning watching baseball. And, like, my sleep schedule, like, I would go to bed at, like, the 8th or ninth inning of every Red Sox game, basically. Because um, my class every day was... I class Monday, Wednesday, Friday um, for three hours i think and um it was at 4 30 in the afternoon so uh i would not have to wake up early so i stayed up really really late watching baseball basically uh way past the time my host family was up um i think the most amusing thing was like the family like the dinners with my host family because like the first week i hadn't taken spanish since junior of high school so there was like a four-year gap there and so like i was getting by on like various words and then like eventually became into sentences and like by the last week my host dad was singing the uh the the song for uh atletico madrid uh at dinner and like blasting it on his iphone it was really really funny yeah um do people watch baseball in spain no 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 they like had like i told them i liked baseball and they're like oh okay and they like didn't know anything about it <laughs> No bars showed it. Like, were there sports bars in Madrid that you went to to watch things other than soccer, or was it just soccer? It was, it was like, mostly soccer. Oh, like, summer, too, so I can see yeah, why. Yeah, it was mostly soccer. And uh, the kids on the trip, like, the guys on the trip that were into sports, who we, we, we like, frequent, we, like, go out to bars every once in a while to watch, like, a soccer game or something. Uh, but, like, they were, they were only really into soccer. Um, there was a kid on the wrestling team, but he was really, really into soccer. So, and uh, soccer is, like... I, I can, like, name a couple players, and I can, like, I've played FIFA, and so, like, and I played a little, and soccer's not, like, a hard sport to understand, so, like, very, very basic knowledge of soccer, but it's certainly not a sport that I'm, like, fluent in. Like, I can, I can name you most of the good players on, like, Barcelona and Real Madrid and, like, some of the other really good players in the world, but I can't, like, I can't name off the, the roster of, of uh, like, Arsenal or something. Like, I can't do that. And I'm guessing that this was not a friendly place for Barcelona fans. No, 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 no. What was your biggest culture shock moment when you were there? Um, I think it was the dinners. Uh, well, just like the meal times in general. Because uh, like the dinners were super, super, super late. Like we'd be eating dinner at like 9, 30, 10 o'clock. And in the States, like at school, I'm eating dinner at like 6, 37 most nights. That was really weird. Um... It was – we would take trips out to like rural towns in, near Madrid uh, or relatively near Madrid and like I was one of the only Asian people there. And so like I'd be walking the streets with my group and you just hear like some random old Spanish guy be like, China, China, China. And I'd be like, oh, OK. What? Thanks. Yeah. It was very odd. It was very odd. Jeez. OK. Well, that's interesting. <laughs> um, yeah. If someone did that to me, I, I'm – I might have to be held back. Might, like, might have to be held back. Uh, like, I, like, have been across Europe a bunch, and so, like, I've, 
I'm pretty pretty good at assimilating to cultures pretty quickly. Um, and so, like, it wasn't too hard, and I'm pretty independent as well. Like, I can, like, I, I took a couple of weekend trips to, I took a week of trip to England, and I'd never been to London before, um, and I went by myself, uh, and I spent basically all three days, uh, with, with the exception of, like, staying with family, um, at night, but I spent all three days by myself, and I made it around a city that I'd never been to before, just, like, based off of my Google Maps and, like, the list of places I wanted to go. That's pretty cool. What was your favorite place that you visited when you were in Europe? Um, so like Madrid is Madrid, like felt like home because I was just there. It's a really small city and super super walkable, which I love. I I love walking everywhere. Um, it's what like one of the reasons why I miss being in Boston um, while I'm in Ithaca for school. But um, I last two weeks my family came to Spain and we went to Barcelona, stayed a couple more days in uh in madrid and we also went to paris and paris was unreal unreal um just so much good food uh so it was just such a beautiful city um and i wish i had more time there yeah i'm planning a european trip right now this summer because i haven't been there in years but the last time i was there i went with my family and we went to paris and the day before i got a really bad stomach bug so I oh, couldn't god. eat any French food when we were in Paris. Oh god! Like, like I tried escargot. I'm pretty good. Pretty good. Uh, bunch of bread and crepes, and it was just fantastic. It was the best. So, last question, I guess. Did you come back a soccer fan or not? Did you pick a team? Um, I have, I have a, me- I have a Messi jersey in my, in my, uh, in my drawers. Um, and I will generally choose Barcelona when I'm playing FIFA, but I like vaguely follow cause I have a bunch of friends who follow soccer and they're super, super into it. So like I followed enough to like where I can like ask them informed questions, uh, and like have some sort of like conversation. I like, and I can like drool over Messi highlights and Ronaldo highlights. Um, but I, I spent too much time watching baseball in order to fall in love with soccer, which is probably a bad thing. Yeah, I guess baseball will always be the first love, the best love for you, June Lee. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, You're going to do massive, massive things. Everyone should follow you at I am June Lee. Listen to the doing it for Bartolo podcast. Um, I love it. It's really, really good. And second only to this podcast but a very, very close second. Um, and yeah, that is it for this week's episode of the Hammer Time Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Feel free to leave any feedback at Ethan Ham. Download us iTunes. Give us five-star ratings. We'll be on Playmaker Mentality. More content coming soon. And otherwise, we'll talk to you later. <laughs>